Praise the Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful time. Being able to be together. Is that me? Is it me? Do you, would you like me to swap mics? You're happy, okay. Oh, we're rocking and rolling this morning. Good start. All right. So, won't you please open up to the book of Mark, chapter 10. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 32. And uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning is continuing in our journey through this gospel in learning to love and follow and appreciate Jesus as a man as well as the Son of God. And uh, we hope this morning that as we hear God's word preached, it would move your hearts towards a greater desire for Jesus. I want to remind you why we are here. We're not here many to survive financially, to make it to the next step of our career or studies or make it home safely without suffering too much in death. What we are here for and what we have been made for is a relationship with Jesus. And the blessing of what this brings into our life is untold. And we're going to look at some men that were very motivated to uh, go far in the kingdom this morning. Let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus calls them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, with a great crowd, oh, sorry, and a great crowd, never mind, with his disciples and a great crowd. Well done, Matt, you got it right third time. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, isn't this incredible? A blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. 
And when he heard that, this, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Wow. What a wonderful text this morning, and I want to remind you, it's again at a turning point in Jesus' ministry. He is going to Jerusalem, and the reason why his disciples are so shocked and amazed and afraid is because he's going to certain trouble. He's going towards his predicted death. In other words, he's going towards suffering. And uh, he describes the cup that he's about to drink in such detail. You, you must remember even knowing the detail of Jesus' death didn't help him necessarily in the Garden of Gethsemane. He still sweat blood, but he had an inclination of what was going to come, although he still had to decide to embrace it. But my first point that I want to kick off today, and the theme of where I'd love us to land, threading through this whole text, is my first point is, is being an ambitious person bad? I want to ask you, what in your mind's eye, if you had to see an ambitious person, how do you feel towards them? Do you think it's allowed for the Christian to be ambitious, or is it bad? Well, I've been giving a lot of thought about this because I think when you watch the modern-day series, particularly law firm series, it's the ambitious person who's dangerous, right? They're the ones that stab guys in the back. They tread on people to get ahead. Ambition has a toxic tinge in our culture. And whenever you see an ambitious person, you have a red flag and go, ooh, I better be careful of them, right? I might become the casualty that gives them their promotion. But I want to ask the question this morning, what does Jesus think about ambition? Because he has a very interesting response to those that want to get somewhere in his kingdom, even if they don't quite understand it. And the reason why I want to ask the question this morning is, where do you want to get in God's kingdom? Because this is something that must shape the way you think and live your life. Because, friends, Jesus has a dramatic offer for whoever once greatness in the kingdom, it is available to you today. There are some things that are going to happen for you to be able to enter into it, but it is unqualified. Everybody in the room here this morning has an opportunity to achieve something for Jesus. However that looks, it's up to God we'll learn. But the time given, the space given, the personality and quality and resources in your hand is given to you by God, and God wants you to do something with it. But friends, ambition does have two sides to it this morning that we need to look at. It does need to be dealt with in a godly way. Now, why am I interested in this question of ambition? Because James and John have stacks of it. <laughs> Seeing Jesus going to Jerusalem is an opportunity for them to secure the top job in Jesus' kingdom. Anybody here ambitious to make it to the top of your organization? And you know, man, there's opportunities and rungs. And... Uh, if you can just get in with the boss, if you can just get in with the manager or the headmaster, hey, who knows how far you could go? And these two 
see Jesus going to Jerusalem. And whenever you remember the city of Jerusalem, you've got to think about two things. Spiritual power and political power. The temple was there with the high priesthood, oh, but also the Sanhedrin, the rulership. And so these guys know that Jesus is talking about a kingdom, which means there is a king. And they think of Jesus' kingdom as a new throne. He's about to toss out the current government and the, the current leadership structure, and he's about to enter in as the king. But doesn't a king need ministers, right? Doesn't a king need a prime minister and a foreign secretary and a council for war? And friends, what they see is an opportunity of Jesus heading to Jerusalem. Forget the fact they just told him. He's just told him he's going to die. I mean, that's how blind ambition can be, right? These guys want the top jobs. And it leads to an incredibly audacious question. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, can you imagine saying that to Jesus Christ? And Jesus doesn't shut them down. He says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And then they come with an even more audacious request, which is, we want to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. In other words, when you take your throne, which they thought was military and political, we want to be the closest guys to enjoy the moment with you. When people see Jesus and trying to make an appointment with Jesus, they want to be the guys through whom they have to go through in order to get close to Jesus. These guys have got bucket loads of ambition. Now, isn't it interesting that it's not just the two of them that have ambition because the other 10, when they hear about this, they're upset because they want those jobs too. Now, I thought about this. These are 12 of Jesus' closest men, closest followers, closest disciples, and every single one of them had ambition in God's kingdom. And I would put it forward to you this morning, ambition is a part of someone who sees Jesus for who he is and wants to do something with him and for him. It is actually, if the more I think about it, you know, even to be an elder, you need to have ambition. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, elders are merely modeling normal Christianity. It says, if any man aspires to eldership, even to be the primary responsibility holder for the well-being of the church, you need a level of ambition. Without it, you cannot be an elder. And friends, the more I've thought about this, even Matthew 11, verse 12, where Jesus says these profound words, he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. In other words, people who have an aggressive desire, not necessarily in an abusive way, but in a way of moving forward and helping the kingdom move forward, they're the ones that achieve something for God. But Jesus, what's so encouraging this morning, he takes ambition as it comes to them. I mean, these guys have got some serious... Uh, problems. <laughs> but he doesn't shut them down. He's open to their requests. But he says, guys, you don't know what you're asking for. You have this ambition, but you don't actually know how it plays out in the kingdom. And friends, today, I want to point out to you that ambition is not evil in and of itself. But ambition does need to be sanctified. In other words, I'll get to it in a moment, but Jesus has to coach, he has to sanctify, he has to, he has to uh, channel their ambition towards the way the kingdom works. But I want to open up with this first point with a question to you this morning. 
How ambitious are you to be useful and to move forward in the kingdom of God? You see, as I look upon us, generally speaking, and I please, you must always contextualize when I say something generally to your life personally. But I want to ask you, I see parents very ambitious for the progression of their children. I see people very ambitious for the well-being of their health and their fitness. I see people very ambitious for the beautification of their homes and the progression of their careers and their advancement in degrees and academics and knowledge. Very ambitious in many, many areas of their life. But I want to ask, how do you think the church is doing an ambition for Jesus? And I want to ask you this morning, do you see your primary reason for being created as being for Him? You see, guys, can I just remind you why we're here? I'm not interested, and the Bible ultimately isn't interested in what your bank balance looks like when you die, or how few wrinkles you have. Oh, goodness, some of us work so hard to try and look attractive. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. I mean, don't let yourself go, but I'm saying you're going to have to let yourself go sometime, right? And friends, what matters ultimately in your life is not the accolades of this world and the amassing of these temperatures. What matters is how motivated you are to follow Jesus in your life. And if you are going to be motivated to follow him and achieve the purpose we're going to see for your life that is God-given and prepared, then friends, you're going to need to have some ambition. My second point today is, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, it's going to involve suffering. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. So he has to correct them. He's saying, listen, I need to help your ambition be channeled in a a more kingdom-like way. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Do you notice what Jesus is saying? You want to get to glory by an appointment. Can I change mics? I don't know what's up with this one. Okay. Are you happy? All right. You want to get to glory by an appointment. That's not how it happens in the kingdom. It comes through suffering. And he asks him, are you able to drink the same cup that he's just described? And he says, they say, yes, we're able And then he says, right, if you want to go somewhere in the kingdom, he tells him, he says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He said, great. He doesn't shut the ambition down, but he says, right, if you want to join in my glory, you must drink of the same cup this morning. Now, why do I need to slow down for a moment? It's because, friends, I want to remind you that every Christian needs a construct for suffering in their life. A false gospel is a gospel that says, when you come to Jesus, you have everything you need in this life and more. And basically, the experience of this life is like a runway. It is just taking off to glory without any hindrance. And all the jet fuel and all the power is there, but there's no problems. There's no mechanical failures or delays saying you can't go yet. Or there's no piloting problems or navigation. Let me tell you this morning, the Christian, if they're going to get anywhere in this life, has to remember that their model is Jesus. And friends, Jesus was perfected through what he suffered. And why do I say that? It's because what can happen to you this morning says, yes, I want to follow Jesus. But the second you start getting serious about Jesus is you get a surprise about how difficult it can actually get. 
And if you're going to go out here today and say, I want to start loving people, loving God, loving the lost. I want to take seriously this pouring out my life as an offering to the one who's bought me with his blood. You're going to experience an opposition, a pain, a sense of frustration that, friends, if you don't understand what it is there for, you'll reject and miss the grace of God in us. We must arm ourselves, Peter says, with the same attitude that Christ had. He suffered in the flesh. And then he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of his life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you want to get somewhere in the kingdom? You're going to have to drink from the same cup of Christ. And his baptism, you know what baptism is? It was used for washing dishes. You take your dirty knife and fork and you plunge it into the water. It was this immersion. And friends, that's what suffering can feel like. And every Christian is going to have a curriculum of suffering. It is going to be part and parcel of God's training, just as Christ had to be changed, yet sinless. Oh, how much more us who need sanctification of the character. But it can feel like, and I want to be very, very honest here, it can feel like you have been plunged into this water of pain. And if you have sought the Lord, some of you know what I'm talking about this morning. You can have the dark night of the soul like Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just like that dirty spoon or that dirty knife can only be rinsed and cleansed as it's in the water, as it's immersed, as it's baptized, so it is the same for our ambition Friends, our ambition needs to be sanctified for Jesus and our character and the way we see the kingdom and who he is needs to be washed and cleansed that we might live more clearly for God. You see, the big problem is, and this is where we start out in our Christian walk, (laughs) is we don't really understand ourselves. Now, do you know what it's like? Now, I'm going to be very honest because it's helpful for you to not feel so, so weird. But isn't it funny, when you're growing up, you always imagined in your fantasies you were the best at whatever it is you were doing? Now, please, you've got to nod. You can't leave me out here in the open, right? So I love tennis. I was always winning Wimbledon, or graciously losing of the most difficult points, that everybody really loved me more than the winner because I fought such a good match. <laughs> or maybe you are this actor and you're in this romance and you're so good looking and this this hot guy or girl you know just can't stop loving you and falling a bit and you went and in the end you can just imagine everybody's watching this film and you get the oscar you know and i mean every fan is you you want to be the person who's the best public speaker i mean you want to be the one who's the best swimmer you want to play for the boca whatever you want to do you almost have this fantasy of grandeur right please nod your head And the problem is, it never really goes away. It just changes. Because as you feel one goes out of reach, so as you enter into new season, other things start to come. And that's where the human heart is very interesting. It's, it's desperately wicked. It's deceptive. Who can understand it, the scripture says. And today, I want to remind you that that's how we start in our life, and that translates into our spirituality. How many of us, when we got saved, said, We're never going to stop living for Jesus, right? He's the best thing that's ever happened. Oh, my word. I just love him. And and every second person, you can't keep quiet about it. And you think, look at these stupid Christians. What's happened to them? They've lost their first love. I mean, the new new convert's so tough on the mature believer. (laughs) And some of us looking on going, oh, I really hope you make it. 
because in the end we know what's coming. And friends, they say, we're able. Jesus asked the question, are you able to drink of this cup? Oh, of course, Jesus will do anything for you. Then he says, okay, you'll drink it. But isn't it interesting when the first sign of trouble came, what did they do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Were they there? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. No, let me tell you. Ah! They ran with their tail between the legs. And the amazing thing about suffering is it actually teaches you what you are really like in two ways. Your capacity, and it also helps shape your calling. I'll get to that. But friends, this morning, I want to say that suffering, Artie Kendall wrote a brilliant book. You should read it. It's a commentary on James. But he makes this profound statement. He says, trials. Suffering are not just the best means of grace of teaching you. It's also the best test of grace. In other words, you actually see what's really there. And can I just be honest this morning? That's what we need. To really start understanding where we are in the kingdom and what we need from Jesus. Can I, I look across the room. Some of you have walked very difficult roads the last couple of years. I would bet my bottom dollar you've been surprised about what's come out of your heart when the pressure's on. And the wonder of what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, guys, you need to understand your calling because they thought we're entitled to sit at your right hand and at your left, Jesus. They thought there's no other position better than that. We, we're worthy of that. That's, what we're, that's where we're going. They never got it. Their path was radically different. It had to be sanctified, but also their capacity. When they said, we are able, and they weren't. And that's what Jesus is going to do through suffering in you and me. And can I just point out to you today, don't ever be jealous of somebody who has a high profile in the kingdom. Because the greater the responsibility in the kingdom, the greater the suffering. And one of the wise ways of living your life for Jesus is learning to be content with the leadership of the Lord, his pace, his opening and closing of doors, his public recognition. You know, my pastor in PE is brilliant at this. He always reminds me, even your level of popularity is set by the grace of God. It's wonderful. Even your progress in your work or the frustrations of your colleagues or the accolades you get or get are denied. Friends, everything in your life is under the hand of Jesus and his curriculum of suffering. It is tailor-made for you. And do you know what? James and John did end up drinking deeply of the cup of Jesus. What happened at the end of their lives? Do you know how they died? James was the first. not the brother who wrote the book of James. James was an apostle, a disciple, not the brother of Jesus. He was the first to be beheaded. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. He was martyred. And John, you know, the Apostle John, he wrote from the island of Patmos. He suffered terrible deprivation in, 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 in his uh, exile. These guys drank from the cup of Jesus. But let me tell you, they were not the same men they were when they asked this question to Jesus. By the end of their lives, God had so increased their godliness, so increased their ability and their capacity, and so clarified their calling that these men found their niche and were content with it. But not only that, even the suffering they experienced, the training of all these years and the model of Christ helped them to run their race well. And it will be the same for you. Because my third point is this. 
I want to point out that our position in God's kingdom is God's choice. This is very important. Mark chapter 10, verse 40 says, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And I'm talking to two kinds of people here this morning. Please, please put yourself in one of these categories. The first, you are super motivated to get some public platform. Lead some public ministry. This is my observation of my pastoral years. You always get two kinds of people. One, they are extremely ambitious and self-confident, and they don't mind the limelight. If they could, they would be preaching. If they could, they would be on eldership. If they could, they would be deacons. If they could, they would start ministries and lead ministries. And that is not necessarily wicked, but their appetite is one that is for the public space and platform. And often, they are looking to existing models of ministry to emulate and copy as signs of success. You with me? But then you get the second kind of person. And there's some here this morning. You don't want the limelight. You don't want to preach. I mean, you couldn't think of anything more. I mean, my dear, lovely, sweet wife, the worst thing that you could possibly do is put her up in front of people and let her speak. She hates it. No, some of us say we don't want to be starting ministries and leading prayer teams and like Joe going and planting churches in Kyrgyzstan. By the way, it's super exciting. You can see which one I fall into. <laughs> but can I just say to you today, do you know the wonderful thing about ambition in your life and desiring to be great? Is that God has tailor-made your responsibility in the kingdom just for you. Did you see what Jesus said? These guys said, we want the prime minister and we want the foreign secretary role in your kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, guys, you're going to drink a mug. I can guarantee you, if you're going to get in this kingdom, you're going to drink of this cup. But it's not my decision to put you there. It's for those for whom it has been, can we say a bit louder? Prepared. One more time. Prepared. Now, that is, it is huge this morning because I want to help both of you, whichever camp you fall in, respond to this call of the kingdom. Can I just point out to you that the kingdom of God is very well arranged? And your salvation is somehow planted in that promised land. Your little plot of inheritance. Remember, those, those guys had to leave Egypt. And the only way they could leave was under the blood of the lamb. But the second they trusted in the blood of the lamb, they were on a journey. And did they suffer, right? In the, I mean, who else would choose a wilderness for training? And there they are. They have to trust. No meat. No bread. Oh, no water. Oh, no Moses. <laughs> And what did they have to do? Over suffering. But there they were. Every tribe had a little plot of inheritance. Every tribe had a plot of purpose, I like to call it. Every tribe had an allotment before they got there. It had been designated. It had been prepared. And friends, they were determined if they could keep it in the forefront of their mind to suffer well, not for the sake of suffering, but for the sake of glory. Jesus does not mind sharing his glory this morning, but it's only going to come through sharing his cup Oh, and also trusting that the way he has designed his kingdom is a perfect fit for you. I just sense someone breathing a sigh of relief this morning. I do. You see, the problem that sanctification needs to happen for ambition is because we have a preconceived idea what we are entitled to, right? 
Or maybe we think that we don't have any preconceived, because we don't want the limelight. But friends, this morning, you've got to know that you are safe in God's leadership over your life, because you might not be a singer, worship's not for you. You might not be a preacher, the pulpit's not for you. You might not particularly like children, don't tell Nikki I'm saying this publicly. Worship ministry may not be for you, friends, but today, the way God has made you, and the way God has put you together, there is a plot of purpose for you. And the way it comes is a wonderful way of what Paul calls the secret of contentment. Hmm. How can I be helpful to you this morning? The problem that we have is we attach greatness to a kind of position in the kingdom. So let me explain it to you like this. When you say great, you think, oh, well, it's the guy up in the pulpit. Here I'm sitting. I could never do that. That's the kind of position that really does something for the Lord. Joe comes up here. Oh, that's the kind of position which, which uh, is really going to be effective. Look at me. I'm a mom. I've got two crazy kids and I'm struggling not to kill every day. Or maybe you're, you're feeling that you're tired and this body's giving up. You can't drive at night and you don't feel the same capacity that you used. Friends, you can feel like that something's only meaningful when it is a certain aspect or position or kind of level of public responsibility in the church. You got me? What you must do is you must delete that way of thinking. Calling in the kingdom is essentially this. Your level of responsibility given to you in your specific season, full stop. And the joy of that is your ambition, in no matter what that season looks like, please hear me, church. Do you want to live a contented, fruitful life for Jesus? Your ambition is not what it needs to look like. Your ambition is to please Jesus Christ in every single area of your life. What must you hunger and thirst for in your life? You know what hunger and thirsting is? It's a deep deep appetite, right? It's the basic need for life. It's the basic need for existence. What is the thing that you be ambitious for? Is you be ambitious to please Him in every area of your life, and you be ambitious for His glory. Amen? When you start to live as a preconceived idea that my ministry must look like this, or an effective spiritual person must look like this, friends, you are cookie-cutting, and it doesn't work in in, in the kingdom. You look at Scripture, the most glorious thing. I love it is not a single man or woman looks the same. And the danger is if you start to attach your spiritual journey to another's, is you're going to miss God's hand-picked design for your life. And it will lead to two things. One, you will go into areas where you are not supposed to be in. Two, you'll never do anything because you go, well, I can never be like that. Can I remind you this morning? No man manipulated his way into any position in Scripture. Abraham, God came to him. Jacob, God met him at Bethel. Joseph, God gave him a dream and then had to sanctify the heck out of him. Moses, he tried by murdering that Egyptian, but it didn't work. Forty years later, God comes to him in a burning bush. Judges, Saul and his donkeys, David and Samuel, someone had to go find him in the field. Isaiah was the closest one to saying, I'll go, but he still said, send me. Friends, as you live for the Lord, as he puts things on your heart, as you begin to live your life out of a love and calling for Christ, and you seek to love him, you seek to please him in every single area of your life, he's going to put things on your heart, he's going to speak to you. And friends, what you will find is your circumstances will begin to flow with his timing of calling. 
You know, the, the greatest blessing in my life, it was the hardest season, and it still is in some ways, is having to wait. When God puts a desire on your life and he sanctifies it, his timing is so perfect. But friends, what you will find is revelations is true. When Jesus says, the door I open, no man can shut. And the, the, the door I shut, no man can open. What you will find, that when it is your time to go into the next thing that God has for you, he knows where to find you. And it's not going to be like me. It's not going to be like you. It will be hand-picked for you. But friends, you've got to be open to it because if you're not ambitious, you will say an automatic no. Do you hear me this morning? Am I making sense? And that is disastrous. It's a disaster, spiritually speaking. And friends, we must trust. You know, the great blessing of Psalm 62 verse 7 says, On God rests my salvation and my glory is today you be ambitious for God, but you take only what his hand is giving. And what you will find is you'll be happy with it. You'll be happy. But friends, I want to sort of jolt us this morning with this idea of, of being too content, too comfortable with where you are at spiritually. I want to nudge us this morning that it is an unqualified indication of whoever would be great among you must be yourself. That it is whoever here this morning. It is for you as you follow Jesus to say, Amen. Amen. But I want to just say, my fourth point is this, is greatness comes through self-sacrifice. What you will find is this call to greatness is not just suffering. It's a call to deny yourself. Don't you think it's interesting when his disciples get indignant, he calls them together, and he has a leadership training moment. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Here it is, but whoever would be great among you must be your, come louder, must be your, come louder, must be your, you're all done. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, there were some attitudes that had to be adjusted in the disciples' hearts. But can I point out to you today, the world's way of leadership to use people as stepping stones to get ahead is not Christ's. And if anybody's interested here and you've got ambition to please the Lord, the first is you can expect suffering, but the second is the way you relate to people has to change. The natural human heart is like this. How can I use this person in my life to get ahead, right? The natural way of orientation is to say, how can I use this person to meet my need? Do you know that the second great love command, to love your neighbor as yourself, it is a brilliant way of Jesus pointing out that that self-centered need becomes turned over as the yardstick for the needs of those people in your life around you. Friends, what Jesus is talking about is a radical 180-degree reorientation of self. It is so dramatic. I, I don't even have words to explain how powerful Jesus' call to serve in the kingdom is. But I can do my best this morning by pointing out his language. Friends, his language is we have to become the servants of those among us. What does a servant mean? It means this. A servant takes note of need. 
This orientation of greatness in the kingdom moves from a love of self to a love of others. It moves from a preoccupation of the need of oneself and how everybody else in my life either meets it or is bypassed because they can't give it or either gives me a sense of significance or recognition or not. How that way of thinking, it is, it, is, it is sanctified. It is for the rest of my life being changed from one degree of glory to the next to this. Is my posture as a follower of Jesus is to have an ever heightened antenna of the need of people around me. That's what a servant does, right? How many of you have ever been served by a great waiter here? Anybody? You can just put up your hand quickly. Let me tell you, they are brilliant. The, a great waiter would work like this. Walks in, he sees, oh, there's, there's, they've been sitting, okay, it's time to ask about the order. They never come too soon, and then they never make you wait too long, right? Their timing's brilliant. How they do it, I don't know. They've got multiple other tables. And then the time, when they serve the food, they always get this perfectly right. They'll, they'll, or they'll be able to tell you about the menu and think about what you would need to know to make a good decision. Or they'll come and serve the food and make sure it's warm. And then when you meal, they'll, they'll know just the right time not to bug you all the time and ask, are you happy with your meal? Have you ever had that, that, that waiter that's a little bit uh, yeah, too enthusiastic? It's amazing. Do you know in the ancient times, the servants would never look at the face of their master, they look at the hand, because at the flick of the hand, they were there. Totally in tune with need. Now friends, I have to ask you this morning, a diakonos is a server of table, is a waiter. I want to ask you this morning, how in tune are you in your life to the needs of those around you? Can I just share what my deep concern for Sterling is as a church and for you? Is I'm very worried we are at risk all the time of just being consumers. I'm, I, I have to be gentle, but I have to be very honest with you this morning. Why are you here? Great, if you're here to receive something, but friends, if that's all you process as, that just means you're meeting my need. That's how a consumer thinks. A Christian thinks, and is growing, or her growing in love is going, I am not here primarily just so that my needs are met, or my timetable's met, or my kids, or whatever is met. I am here understanding that as a Christ follower, I'm here to serve. And that may be in a formal ministry or not. That's not the point. The heart of it is my antenna when I come into this place is, how are these guys doing? I want to ask you, are you like that this morning? I want to ask you, in your family, youngsters here, it is natural to just take. When last have you, as a Christ follower, said to your mom and dad, how can I help you? How about this? How about in your family or extended family, things are going down. It's our natural inclination to turn our face from needs that could be uh, an invasion of my personal comfort or an invasion of my personal space of settled state of living. I ask you this morning, Sterling, how are you going to live for Jesus? Because it starts by understanding need, but a servant doesn't just stay there. He meets it. As far as possible, he or she meets it. A good servant doesn't just know need, a good servant meets the need. And friends, it is an active participation in the kingdom. It is half the way to realize, wow, that person's not doing so well. It is the victory to be able to say, as far as possible, please hear me here. I'm going to talk about my next thing about being a slave. It's a scary thing, but there, there are some boundaries, praise God, in the kingdom. But as far as possible, if you can't meet directly, you're finding someone else to do so. This is mature, godly, Christ-following church. And I want to ask you how seriously will you take it in your life? 
Sterling's a wonderful place to come to, these wonderful buildings, these wonderful established ministries, but that is not the point. The point is to call you to the kingdom, and the way that you grow is to have a noticing of need. Do you know what we celebrate here as your elders? We celebrate your consistency in coming. That's halfway. Do you know what we really want to celebrate one day when we present you to Jesus? It's the fact that you saw that your participation in this kingdom wasn't just a passive reception and a sort of passive following of Jesus in private. was that you were spurred on to use your love, your time, your body, your soul, your spirit, as, as you loving the Lord God with all your heart. You gave your life with this wonderful purpose of being a blessing to others. Amen. Oh, do you know how people come here and they feel unloved? It's because there are times when we, including myself, are just preoccupied with the need of getting to be with those we feel comfortable with. No, no one ever finds a small group because no one asks. Do you know why no one ever considers really serving is because the fundamental basis of a person's life, not always, is I'm too busy. Don't interfere with my autonomy, because that's the second part. Is Why does Jesus up the ante? He says this. He says, should be a servant of all, but then he also says, should be a slave of all. Can we all say slave? Ah! I tell you what, as a, as, a, as a minister, I said to the Lord, this is impossible. What you are saying on a Sunday is Matt is meat for all. He's up on the menu. Whatever people ask, you know, it is a scary thing to be a part of a church where you realize more than your few small groups, you just don't have space. And, and friends, I want to say to you today, it is a very challenging saying, but it's not that this is, there's no boundaries, but what a slave is, please hear me, this is very important, what a slave is, is a slave is someone that has lost their freedom to live an independent life. I'll say it again, a slave Please look at me, this is very important. A slave is someone who has lost their freedom to live an independent life. In other words, when you become a follower of Jesus, your life is not your own anymore. Not so? You are bound to the well-being of others around you, and you are now a slave, in inverted commas. In other words, this autonomy, a slave doesn't have that. This autonomy to say, I'm going I'm to use my calendar just for me. I'm going to use my money just for me. I'm going to use my time just for me. I'm going to use my talents just for me. I'm going to use my family just for me. Everything in my life has this independence of being able to amass comforts and wealth and security outside of a concept that I'm in a community that serves and loves other people. Friends, if that's the way you're going to live, you're going to go nowhere in the kingdom. But the Christian understands that when they come and become a follower of Jesus, praise God, not only are they a servant, which they know about need, oh, they also have awareness that they have to meet that need responsibly. Oh, but they're also a slave. Friends, when you came to Christ, you lost your independence to live as you please. Wow! So why not just start living like the way you were saved? <laughs> Do you know what I found in my life? And if you are a Christian here this morning who's tried to live like this, you'll know. When you try to start to serve two masters, it's miserable. It's miserable. 
you can feel the prompting of the Spirit saying, hey, hello, come on, it's time to get going in the kingdom. There puts people on your heart. He puts people, he puts ministries and concerns as you're praying. It's coming out of your fellowship with Jesus. Listen to last week's sermon. It's coming out of your delight, not only to be close to him, but to honor him, to bring him glory. Oh, friends, what you'll start to find is he puts constraints on you. He says the love of God constrains us. He starts to make you feel a burden for your brother and sister. He starts to put people on your heart that you would never want. You start becoming the slave of all. And does that mean we have no freedom or boundaries? Of course not. Didn't Jesus say to the Syrophoenician woman, I have not been sent to you. I've been sent to the last sheep of the house of Israel. Do you notice when he said to his disciples, anybody rejects your message, you shake the dust off your feet. You move on. Don't you think it's amazing when he says, don't cast your pearl before swine? Even Jesus only had how many disciples? Isn't that interesting? But this is the point of being a slave of all. Do you notice how much Jesus is willing to be interrupted by need? I was sitting thinking, there's that Syrophoenician woman, although he was not sent to her as the primary space of ministry. He allowed himself to be interrupted. He allowed himself to say, okay, well, let's, let's look at a couple more examples. I mean, Jairus and his, his dying daughter. What about Lazarus when he got sick? I can't see anywhere in my notes. There we go. <laughs> what about the woman with the discharge? Who touched me? What about the day that Mark Wood preached on the life of Jesus where he gets interrupted? And what about our wonderful example today of Bartimaeus? Do you notice how much Jesus is, in, is okay with being interrupted by need? Can I ask you this morning, are you? Are you? Friends, we give ourselves to our antenna radius of responsibility but friends, by being a slave of all, we are open to the Lord, bringing people for moments in our life, who knows, for a bit longer. The Spirit will tell you, I can guarantee you that. Ah, but we're open. The Son of Man sets an example. Do you know that you interrupted Him in His glory? Do you know that He came down from His glory and He forsook His rights, His comfort, and His independence to take on the weakness of flesh so that you this morning could benefit from his attention. Isn't that wonderful? So Jesus says, you do the same. If you're going to be great in God's kingdom, you're going to have to embrace suffering. It's good for us when it's under the hand of God and not for sin. But you're also going to have to embrace self-sacrifice. And the last is this. I'll just say my headings because it's, our time is up, but you're also going to have to have persistent faith. Isn't it wonderful that Bartimaeus is a sign of what great faith is this morning? Do you want to know what great faith is? Hebrews says there's two things to achieve the greatness of God's call on your life. It's suffering and faith. And faith, if it's going to be of kingdom use, is like Bartimaeus. A blind man, never being able to see a miracle of Jesus or to see a sign, believes he's the son of David. He's the Messiah. Great faith takes God's word to heart. No seeing, believing by hearing. Great faith is persistent. Do you know he had such discouragement? How many of you are begging on the side of the street this morning? You're facing some suffering? Anybody face that, being a blind beggar? 
Let me tell you, he had every circumstance against him. He had people saying, shut up, Bartimaeus, keep quiet. You're disturbing everybody. And he had the discouragement of timing. Jesus was leaving the city. Don't you think it's interesting? He's not coming into Jericho. It was the last moment for Bartimaeus to catch Christ's attention. And he went over and over. He refused to be silent. He was persistent right to the very end until Christ said, come, come. His faith refused to be discouraged from what he knew he had the right to ask Jesus for. And his faith is so humble. So it's taking God at his word. It's being persistent. And it's being humble. He says, have mercy on me, son of God. He's not dictating to Jesus. And his faith led to deeper obedience. Don't you think it's interesting where Jesus says to him at the end? He says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Which way did he go? He followed Jesus. Friends, faith leads us into a deeper obedience to Christ. You stay close to him no matter what. What did he do with his sight? He fixed it on Jesus. Wow! Enjoy the ride, church. But you've got to want it. I just have a heart, I have a, I have a, a special word, uh, a scripture on my heart today. Some of you are like Samson's here. You've, my whole life has largely been characterized by regret. Some of you are hearing this message and you're 80 years old, or you're close to retirement. You're not the picture of perfect health you used to be, right? Can I say even Samson, after causing terrible, terrible failure and mistakes in his life, in the last moments, stood between those pillars and had a heart to serve God. And he achieved that plot of purpose for him at the very end. You can too. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Embrace God's curriculum of training. It's called suffering. Be willing to learn how to live like Jesus, which is Self-sacrifice. Be determined to trust the Lord as the waves of training hit. And I guarantee you, whoever here, whoever lives this way is in line for glory. Let's pray. Lord, as I, I, I think about this congregation this morning, I see little vineyards all around. And and amazing about vineyards is they have a specified boundary. Some farms, some, some vineyards are very big, and there's lots of workers, and the owner has to manage lots of workers. Some are, are, are these wonderful little vines in gardens, but each have been handpicked by the Lord. And I just, Lord, I see for you this morning... Is there's a vineyard for you to tend to, a little flock of need. And the Lord is calling you to increase your antenna, to be attentive in being useful to nurturing and serving those around you this morning. It's all different. I'm not a part of your family. You're not a part of mine. You're not on my teams. I'm not a part of your team. But you've got responsibility. You need to emulate that vine dresser. He's given you a task. It's time to live like a servant of the Lord, a slave to those around us, a Bartimaeus that decides to walk by faith 
Lord, make us those people, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, just a reminder, part of expressing where we are as a church at the moment is, is, is loving God in His ways, of, of living our life with a purpose and meaning. So there's a loving up table, there's a loving and a loving out. You, you had a week to pray about it, but there are various initiatives. If you feel that there's some aspects where you want to love the Lord more, you want to love the church more, your brothers and sisters want to love the lost, won't you please go to those tables and we would love to serve you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a lovely Sunday.